so we can just like chat a little bit. Can we bit. talk about your new mustache? We can. Is this, oh, it's new. Yeah, this is new. You know, I don't know. I think it does <laughs> give a certain sort of like, yeah, it's not like creepy. Thank you. I appreciate that mm-hmm. very much. And you're being a really nice guest. <laughs> So many, so many, so many damn books. And the person talking right there was Angela Flournoy. Welcome to the damn library, Angela. We really appreciate you coming. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, welcome. Um, Angela Flournoy, you're the graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop where you received a Dean's Fellowship. Mm -hmm. Uh, You taught at University of Iowa and Trinity Washington University, and you currently teach at Columbia. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the new school. And the new school, yeah. which oh. is where I went to oh. get my MFA. Really? Oh. Uh, and you worked at the DC Public Library, which sounds awesome. I really love that that's in your bio. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, I really loved the library. It was my ideal job, so I think and you, and, fondly. And you <laughs> left it. You left your ideal job? Yeah. DC is not my ideal city. <laughs> that's just how things are. You just, like you're never gonna have everything. Yeah, you always yeah. have to choose. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you are the author of the Turner House. Yes. Your National Book Award finalist, and you just won a uh, an award from Barnes and Noble as well. I, I got second place. Oh, congratulations! And um, the Discover Award, which is like the Discover Great New Writers program, they give out awards for people who were in that program, and they sort of whittle it down, and they give out a lot of money. Like I didn't win; I got second place, and I got. $15,000. Wow. That's crazy. That's, that's great. Seems like it wasn't real. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I like ran and went to teach immediately. And I had like the check on my person for hours and hours. Before we go into and singing the presence and asking you some questions about your book, why don't we talk about uh, what we're drinking? What we're drinking. We're jink. So yes. what is it called again? I'm calling it, um, in reference to your novel, and people who have read it will understand a little bit, it's called The Ain't No Haint. Ain't No Haint. Ain't No Haint. And um, in the book, uh, a character often sees a ghost, but is a blue, mm-hmm. it is manifest in blue light. And this is actually a, a red drink. Right. So I, I couldn't call it an actual haint. <laughs> I'm very happy it's not blue because things that make drinks blue are usually like terrible. We've yeah. had a couple of blue drinks and it's always just disconcerting. What, yeah. What do you use? Like blue curacao? Yeah, exactly. <sighs> you got to have a very light, light touch. With light. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Just a tiny drop is enough. <laughs> yeah. I use it pretty much just for the food coloring properties of right. it. But this drink, um, so we're making, we actually have something really exciting. Oh we, yeah, we're, we do. Um, we this episode and and a, and I don't know a couple in the future maybe are uh, are brought to you by Brooklyn Gin. Uh, they, you know, are sponsoring these by by hand, handing us some bottles of their incredible product made with uh, 
It's yeah, it's just it's wonderful local gin. It's very bright. I don't know. I'm really excited about the gin. It's delicious. Yeah. And it's available if you're a New York resident, it's pretty available to you at many different bars and stuff. Just go to their website and uh but I used it, it with um a little bit of uh dry vermouth, uh some celery bitters and a couple squirts of uh sriracha sauce. And I shook that up. So it's sort of a strange martini you know you actually don't you probably of course you didn't realize this but like sriracha is made um in rosemead california but they have like so basically that's down the street from where i grew up Um, oh really so it's also like a very when i think about sriracha like we've i've been using and eating sriracha much longer before people discovered it (laughs) which is a very like history thing to say but it's true and so there's another way that it's like an ode to um to me it's like yeah <laughs> well fantastic nice. that i'm gonna pretend i did that on purpose. <laughs> um well and so go out and get all that stuff and now you're back and you have it and you're drinking it and and uh let's talk about what'd you buy what'd you buy do you oh, want to start you look <laughs> you you got uh, excited for a second. <laughs> what did I buy? I bought um, a new book called "We Love You, Charlie Freeman" by Caitlin Greenidge. Ooh. Oh yeah, um, beautiful yeah. cover. It is a beautiful cover. Um, it's out it's Algonquin, I believe, and um, it's basically a story of like a family in the '90s that, um, like, a New England family, a uh, Boston family that are the mom is like a sign, sign language expert, and they're con- they're. Uh, like persuaded to move to the Berkshires to do this, to help teach a chimp sign language. Oh. And so like from that premise, it becomes clear that the like Institute that um, sponsored them is actually like, it's a little nefarious. I don't want to spoil, but like, it's not, <laughs> it's not, everything is not what it seems. Wow. That yes. sounds great. Cool. Drew. Uh, I picked up Lisa Lutz's the passenger. Oh, um, She's a longtime favorite of mine with her Spellman Files series. I believe she's a UC Santa Cruz yes. graduate as well. So. Her um, banana slug. Um, I'm excited though. She decided that she wanted to write like a straightforward thriller, and she set out to write this with that in mind. And I'm excited to see what she does with it. Instead of you know being a little comic and a little goofy, right? She the Spellman Files. You said yeah, right. and uh, how Which to is start a, great a fire. Series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Christopher, uh, I bought. Um, everybody's been talking about this book. It's being being called like the first great millennial novel, and I'm really interested in it. Private Citizens. Tony T. I blurbed that book. Uh, oh, oh wow. <laughs> uh, it's uh, Tony Tula Timuti. Yep, to- Tula Timuti. Tula Timuti. It's a really fun name to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm super excited about it. It seems like one of these books that's going to be a big deal. It is very millennial. <laughs> um, Fits for us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> On a podcast? <laughs> You're here, so I would love to talk to you about the Turner House. Yes. Your incredible novel, which I oh. just flipped for. Yeah. I, I would say both of us did in a way where we weren't, we almost weren't prepared to was not prepared to mm. be as excited and and involved in the book and i think like this is one of the really great reasons and we say this all the time but the tournament of books 
I might not have read this book if it hadn't been up in this tournament. And I'm so, and this is why I'm glad I follow the tournament is I get to discover incredible novels. And I would actually really like you to maybe explain to our listeners what the Turner House is about, since you're probably really good at it. <laughs> in theory, um, yeah. Um, so the the Turner House is a novel that's set in present day ish Detroit, um, in 2008 Detroit. Um, well, that's sort of like the present day of the story, and it's really a novel about. Um, a big family. Um, there's 13 adult siblings and their relationship to this house on the east side of the city, which is a very depopulated uh, part of the city. Um, it really focuses on like the eldest and the youngest, but sort of throughout the course of the novel, you also sort of see the history of the neighborhood and how the family got the house. Um, yeah. And there's, there's a haint, a ghost mm-hmm. also. I, I sometimes forget to say that and people are upset. So, <laughs> That was kind of fun for me. I grew up in like a big old Victorian house outside of Philadelphia mm-hmm. with parents who like believe in ghosts and would talk about ghosts that maybe lived in the house. And I was so thrilled when all of a sudden you not only introduced the concept, but then we're like very serious about, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe this is real and, and otherwise like very realist novel. And I'm kind of curious, do you believe in ghosts? I, or haints. I spirits. sort of am like a uh, like a a bet hedger. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> so I believe, but I have no interest in like having that belief sort of confirmed. Okay. <laughs> so you don't, um, you don't want to go hunting at all. No, I have no interest in any sort of ghosts, ghost encounters. But I feel like the sort of smart thing is to believe in everything, but hope to see nothing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's interesting. Um, yeah, kind of that way when you, if, when you see a ghost, it's like, ah, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, you. <laughs> One well, of these. Yeah. I was really hoping I wouldn't have to do this. <laughs> um, and do you think that that informed like how you did, like, is this something you came to after writing Chacha or was it before that you? Um, so um, there was just, I also, it was uh, my grandparents, but I had, heard stories about um haints growing up um and these stories were usually about things that happened when you know my grandparents were young um when they were still in the south and none of them like not a lot of them were like the landscape of these stories were never actually in like the north and so Mm -hmm. that was something that was interesting to me um kind of why is it that they it's like they they just can't come like yeah they, they're just not associated with this new landscape but they're such like sort of part and parcel with the old landscape i mean such that um people in south carolina they do um sherman sherman sherwin williams sells a, a paint color paint blue and people do paint their house Wait, really yeah paint their wow. like door jams or their porch floors or this porch ceilings they paint that paint it paint blue like today still wow oh that's cool mm-hmm Another um, sort of important part of the novel is is Leela's gambling, mm-hmm. and the, uh, one of the big plot points is whether or not they're going to keep this big house that they all grew up in. And sort of when I was reading it, I sort of had this feeling, or I don't know if it was a worry, or but I guess when I when I'm reading a book that has gambling in it, there's like two ways that 
either they win a lot of money mm-hmm. and they and it changes the plot in some way or they lose everything and it changes the plot in that way. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting that it's like sort of it didn't go either of those ways. I wanted you to talk about gambling and, and how you sort of navigated through it in your novel. Well, I really just wanted to show sort of more than... I guess we can imagine that at one point she did have sort of a big, big win. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to show more of kind of like the quotidian, like every day, it's just enough for you to keep hoping, like not enough to change your life. Sort of um, like winning, um, but then also like losing and also, and how much gambling is not actually about that. So in the novel, she is way more invested the time that she doesn't win than when she does win because it's really not about that. It's about what she's like there. She's sort of self-medicating in a way, like what she's hoping to get out of the experience so that when she does win a couple thousand, it's like, it doesn't feel like it. Um, But sort of bigger than that, I was just, um, the city of Detroit at like the height of the recession had about 30% of the population under the poverty line, but they had three huge casinos within city limits. Um, And then a couple right across the river in uh, Windsor. I've always been fascinated since I was like old enough to understand that that was strange. Like what that dynamic. Um, And when you go into the casino in Detroit, it's not like when you go to Vegas or even Atlantic city, it's like people are in there. Like it's their job. It's not an escape. It's not like, to be someone else they're in there like on a mission and i felt like that was fascinating there's something interesting for me anyway having never been there and only experienced detroit through popular culture mm-hmm. but i feel like a lot recently uh lauren bucus's novels movies like it follows or only lovers left alive which i'm now realizing that all of those are horror stories <laughs> but Detroit is presented as this place that is almost like beyond saving that it is, it is destroyed and you see it and it's like, it's burned out. I loved the fact that this novel presented it as like a city that is alive where people are there. Yeah. Almost like a hope, like a hopeful Detroit. Yeah. And the, even like the quotidian stuff of just day to day life. And I was wondering if, if you were thinking about that as you wrote this or, because it's fascinating to hear you talk about the idea of people going into these casinos like it's their job. And I'm just wondering about how you grappled with Detroit while you were writing this book. Well, one thing that I did was conscious of is um, I've gone to Detroit my whole life and I've usually gone around the same time for like a big family gathering every year. And so my associations are really positive. And it wasn't was really when I moved um, like post undergrad to the east coast um new yorkers they they in general new yorkers are like why why you're not going to london or you're not leaving the country why are you traveling within this you know the country like why there's no other city you know domestic city worth visiting (laughs) and especially when i would be like i don't know what i'm gonna do for thanksgiving maybe i'm gonna go to detroit people were just like why you can come to my house to my friend's giving you don't have to do that and it it occurred to me that some people have a, a very sort of different idea of the place and so there was one thing that I did want to sort of have a balance of was both the um, the realities of sort of, you know, things are not great, yeah. but balance with some things have been consistent and there have been pockets of the city that have been untouched and people still do all the things that people do when they live in a place. 
I did feel like there, I, I mean, with the way that the book is structured, we get a bunch of different perspectives and we also actually get a bunch of different time periods as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I loved living in this book and I wondered and hoped that there might be like more things in the Turner family or like the, and, and doing some, some other part of their story because you, it's a huge family. You and my mother both. <laughs> my mother's like, you just need to, you just need to ride this wave and you know, have a sequel. Um, I don't really, the thing is you get to a point where it's like the thing that becomes a reward for finishing a book is that your next book will be completely different. So mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. my brain is like full of non Detroit Turner <laughs> things, but I, there is like one character. I won't say who, who um, uh. I do think about still. I, I do. I think if I wrote a, wrote a sequel, sequel, I'd be very interested in killing some people off in oh. a way that I don't think people want. <laughs> so, but I think it would be interesting for me, like narratively and just like just something new to sort of like a challenge but i think i don't know if people want that though so did i mean like with 13 care like 13 kids it's so it's such so big mm-hmm. um i don't know and we don't end up in all of their mm-hmm. heads like what why 13 and not like seven of the people well, um, I really wanted the, uh, Layla, Layla and Chacha to be a generation apart. Mm. And I also wanted it to be like an unreasonable, air quote, unreasonable <laughs> amount of children. Seven kids is a lot, but it's not crazy. But like nowadays in 2016, if you have more than like eight kids, you can get a reality show. So <laughs> I wanted there to be just like a sort of unwieldy amount of them, like a crowd of people. Um there are some like nuts and bolts reasons, um, practical reasons. So I was um, in grad school with one of my dear friends, Ayanna Mathis, um, who wrote a book called The Twelve Tribes of Hattie. In the summer, we both started fervently working on our novels. It wasn't until the end of that summer that I asked somebody, I was like, by the way, what is Ayanna working on? And they were like, she's working on a, a family, like a book with like 11 siblings. And I was just like, no. <laughs> um, so I couldn't have 11 because she literally has 11, but I also couldn't have 12 because it's called the 12 tribes of Hattie because it's like one grandchild who like, it's a connected sort of novel thing. Um, anyway, so... I had to go bigger <laughs> and 13 felt right for me. My, my father is the fifth of 13. So it's a number that like, I've always like grown up hearing. Um, so it seemed like things were conspiring to just push me back to the 13. You jump back and forth in time a little bit, but I'm curious about, you know, you jump back to the 1950s and there's a little bit of time spent there but are there things that didn't make it into the novel from the parents' generation? Or were there any moments where you're like, oh, I could follow this story as mm-hmm. opposed to following the present day story? Mm, the parents were really the last thing that I wrote. Um, oh. So the sections in the 40s, I was afraid to write them for numerous reasons. One, because I had sort of front loaded uh, working on the book with research. Like the first year I checked out like all of the books from the University of Iowa library and I held on to them until I was like threatened <laughs> to give them back. Um, and so I had so much information and I did not want 
as much as it already, it feels very like a place sort of centric book, mm-hmm. but I was afraid that it would become completely just like a catalog of like cross streets if I really let myself. So there's a very strict math. I don't encourage anyone to like count pages and things, but there's a very <laughs> strict math to the parts that are in the 40s. Like they are, they never, each section is never over a certain amount of pages. Hmm. And that's because I didn't trust myself to not just like try to shoehorn every good fact. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, um, I always knew that it would sort of, it was the interesting thing was like, why did they even get back together and how did they even get back together? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Can can you talk a little bit about writing at Iowa and just, mm-hmm. cause it's, it's an incredibly uh, difficult program to get into. Mm-hmm. And, and then this place is strange and <laughs> cut off from everything. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so what was it like? Is it strange? I don't, it doesn't feel strange to me, but it's like, for me, I really I always compare it to summer camp because it was, <laughs> or like extended camp because it was like a weird location I would have never otherwise been in. And it was um, a place where people were like reinventing themselves. Like there were some people, some classmates of mine who like went by one name before they started the workshop and then decided you know much like people decide at whatever point in their lives when there's like a new entry like i'm going to become this person i'm not using my middle name anymore i'm using my first name or whatever um and so it was like a place where people kind of wore costumes (laughs) sometimes i know i did sometimes like to workshop like it's freezing outside i'm demoralized this is the one day the week i know i'm gonna see people i would like (laughs) sometimes just dress ridiculously um just to see if anyone would notice um but really you just have a lot of free time the 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 sort of secret of iowa is that you just get a lot of time to write and eventually unless you just become really dedicated to picking up bad habits you'll write something Uh, you I think you know your your book is a is a contender yes. in the tournament of books. It's an honor, and, and I think so. It is. Yeah, it's and it's one of our secret hopes that the Turner House wins it all. Yeah, no, I just, I'm not even oh. secret about it. I said it last episode. It is my favorite to win. Oh, you know, I tamped down all those hopes. <laughs> <laughs> I just I'm happy to be here. I am happy to be here. I do think it's it's like a blessing and a curse to be nominated to be in the shortlist of the tournament because um through my own research uh be, the day that the shortlist was announced i i notated what the rating was on goodreads of everybody of everybody's book all 17 books i oh, looked at the I rating every single goodreads rating went down after uh, by the time the tournament started every single one but that except means people were reading it though it means people were reading it but it also means that the wrong, like the audience that w- wouldn't have found it necessarily, which care. is good. I don't They already read it. They've been tricked. I've <laughs> I don't care. That's a good, that's a, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good attitude. I mean, I want people to enjoy it, but ha ha, you read it. <laughs> I got you for 350 pages. Ha ha ha. Uh, that's a, I like that. I like that too. I do. Um, but I do think it's interesting that this is, this is an interesting thing that like, when you become part of the tournament of books and you're like, I want to read all the things for it. I want to be part of the discussion. You end up reading books that you would never would have been the audience for. You Mm. never would have picked this book up. And in some ways it's great because I read things that I never would have read and I love them. And I realize that I'm silly to have the taste that I have. There's um, somebody, I don't remember who, but I, 
I um somebody on Twitter. Sometimes I search the book title on Twitter. Don't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> and a woman was like. <laughs> I thought that this book, I thought that the Turner House was going to be a book that like made me eat my vegetables, but instead it was like eating a big bowl of ice cream. So I think that some people for some reason think my book is going to be like a downer and that they're going to like, it's going to be capital I important and they're going to capital L learn things, but they're going to be like bummed out, which I mean, sad things do happen, but I think there's ice cream. Yeah, there's definitely ice cream (laughs) in this book. Yeah, it's good. There, there was a, um, there was an interesting uh, part of the, uh, you know, the judgment for Fates and Furies versus Bachelor Public. <sighs> yeah, I know. Where they talked about, <laughs> he said that Fates and Furies lost. I didn't. <gasps> oh. Yeah. Oh, I just, I, me and Lauren, we just did a thing in Amherst together last week. I'm sad she lost too. Yeah. Uh, well, she, she could come back as a zombie. What was your term for this? Fates and Furies is gonna zom. Yeah, I hate that. You don't like that term. I hate it so much. I don't I don't want <laughs> z- zombieing to become a, a, a shortened verb. No, that book's totally gonna zom, man. I think it might zomb. become a zombie. People do love it. I it probably will. It probably will. So wait, who did it get knocked? It out lost by? to Bats of the Republic by oh. uh Zachary Dodson, which is a big upset because not a lot of the people who read that book mm-hmm. were disappointed by the story. They loved the experience. Like it seemed like people universally thought it was beautifully designed, mm-hmm. but they were thought they did think it didn't quite deliver I on a story. Um, I I personally think it it did everything it set out to do, uh, and I think it's a <laughs> fascinating book. And um, but it, it is interesting. And I had a point when i brought it up and now it's all something falling about apart. fates I don't and know. furies i know yeah, yeah. who knows now <laughs> it doesn't matter another book that has unfortunately now lost but that i also wouldn't have read if it were not for the tournament is fran ross's oreo oh yeah oh that's a book that the book has been on my list of books to read i've not read it, it. oh my god it's so it's so funny yeah and it's it's really funny and it's super strange too like it's a strange book the weirdest thing is that it feels like it could have been written today yeah it was it, written 40 years ago and yet it feels like it could have come out yesterday yeah it's it almost it almost sort of speaks to the fact that it was like not paid attention to when it came out because <laughs> like it turns out that it, it was a time travel it was 40 years early yeah. <laughs> ahead of its time exactly mm. um but it it lost to the sympathizer which um if if people haven't quite gotten to that book and they're reading yet i highly recommend listening to this book really Who rather reads it? i don't I it's, don't know the um, name of the reader. Oh man, I know this because uh, Francois Chow. Mm. Interesting. Um, he, who was uh, what's his name on Lost? Voice. He was the guy in the videos on Lost. Because I have oh, the book. Really? Viet beat me. What did he beat me for? Oh, for the Center for Fiction Prize. Shout out to Viet. He's very nice and smart. Um, so I shouldn't read it though. You're saying no, no. I I think it's great. I liked it. The reading of it is rough. And for everything that Christopher has said about the listening to it makes me think, oh. Why because, is the reading rough? Well, I mean, when you look at the pages, it looks like walls of text. Like it, But it, I've heard him read from it. And there's some wonderful lists. I'm a, I'm a big list person. I mm. like lists. So, I don't know. Oh, he's good at the lists. And he also like really makes you wish that you were... I think he went to 
in in the book the character went to San Diego for a for school mm-hmm. and it makes you really want to be a student at San Diego like yes there's there are these incredible passages there are these incredible passages where it's just like the sun is shining and everything sounds bright and fuzzy yeah I'm not one for audiobooks but this is one that I kind of hmm. I almost want to uh, I guess I don't know reread listen to for the first time mm-hmm. it's a great it's a great listen mm. Um, I, this is a question that I've asked other people that I've visited, but I'm curious to you. Did you listen to your books, oh. audiobook at all? Heavens no. Um, so <laughs> I did choose, um, I was given a few options and I did choose the woman who reads it. Her name is Adinrele Ojo and she is, um, or Ojo. Oh no, forgive me, please. Um, so she is super talented and I picked her because I thought she was like contemporary and wasn't, I didn't want it to feel like it was like your grandma sort of reading this story. <laughs> um, but, and I've, so I've listened to enough of it to know that she's doing it justice, but there's something very strange about listening to someone else read my book that I have not been able to get over. No. Yeah. I think that this is, this, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Me too. Um, it seems like it'd be super strange. Yeah. something that I've noticed is that just the tournament loves esoteric museums. I think they're, I think you were saying you love lists Mm -hmm. and I do think that like when you're writing a museum, you get to have a lot of fun with your list of what is in there. Yes. You get to present a list in a way that's not annoying. Like George Perec's life, a user manual where there's a three page list. that's just everything that's in this storage cabinet. Mm-hmm. for three pages of just it's this, not comma, enjoyable. this comma no so so one of the best lists i've ever read is um novelist uh edward carey he has a, a strange novel called observatory mansions and Ooh, i really want to read that it, oh man you should read it for like the uh, the illustrations alone are like creepy and wonderful but cool. at the end of it is like this list of all of the things that I can't remember even where they were, but all the, it's like this old sort of like converted apartment mansion place that people live in. And at some point, like one of the people's stuff are cataloged. And so it's like a, at the very end of the book is just like a list of like this, all the stuff, this one quirky character owned and it is creepy, delightful list. That sounds right up my alley. Yeah, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Um, there's some really interesting matchups coming up in the yeah in the next week. We have uh, the matchup that will have been decided by the time anyone is listening to this. Our souls at night versus the whites, two titans of of old school white male writer. Yeah, yeah. I I I'm, I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm ho- I'm I'm voting for our souls at night. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I like just, Richard Price, but the thought- whites was interesting um i'm not gonna say anything bad about it i enjoyed it but i just thought it was i thought it was just fine is the thing i I think there's another possibility of a big maybe not as big as bats of the republic versus um fates and furies but i do think that um the book of aaron versus the star of love and techno Hmm. i think i think either one beating the other one is is an upset like i don't those are so even to me yeah 
of of popular opinion of those authors and going into it and i i my wish is that anthony mara wins but who knows yeah ditto that book is just lovely yeah fascinating incredible book you know him as tony yeah (laughs) i do know him he's a wonderful person um but there's a lot of fun to come this week in the tournament there always is and um and a lot of sadness and a lot of sadness and uh i'm i'm glad to see that your book is going to continue on to soldier forward i am really excited (laughs) about it um i try to you know like look at these things with only one eye but then it's like oh you made it through a round and i start to become more and more interested um but you know it's still an honor (laughs) i just have to keep saying that but um so who will i be against the next time around it'll either be the whites uh or the book of uh, no, Our Souls at Night. Our Souls at Night, yeah. Oh, interesting. My um, my question to you is, as a debut novelist, I'm curious if you if it was scary to be a debut novelist, like when you're putting your book out, like the day that you woke up on debut day. <laughs> <laughs> so I forgot where I was. Oh, I think I was here because I was still living in West... I lived at home last year for a year um, in West Covina. West Covina. Um, and my mother, I was here for something when the books came. So my mother had already like hid some books, ferreted books away at various places and decided what she was going to do with like my author copies of books, which is fine because (laughs) I would just give them away sort of like to anybody. But, um, I don't know, like what I was afraid. I just thought it would be sort of a way for me to be, get better teaching jobs. <laughs> like if I could, and I was just like, if I could, if somebody will let me teach, you know, more than just composition now, life is good. Um, I had very low expectations. I did, I knew because my, from my friends, they told me that like your, the day that your book actually launches is usually anticlimactic. You have to plan things for that day. So I had a reading that day at SO1 Books in uh, Lamert Park in Los Angeles. And then like, it was just all people who had no choice but to be there, you know, <laughs> um, my friends and family. And then I had like a little party after, but um, I was living, I woke up that morning at my mother's house. I was living with my mother. Oh, that's nice. That sort of does put things in perspective <laughs> <laughs> because the, like the level of enthusiasm is the same, like no matter what the accomplishment. <laughs> so yes. Uh, thank God for moms. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's like, you're always a winner. It's <laughs> true. I, I wish you luck in the future with your book. I'm pulling oh, for you. it. Yeah, um, me too. But why don't we move on to recommendations? Oh. Drew, do you want to start us? Sure. Um, I just finished delightfully Naomi Novik's Uprooted. Um, oh, yeah. She's a fantasy author who has been working on a, I think it's going to be an eight book series about... Uh, the Napoleonic Wars, if they were fought with dragons, hmm. which sure, great. <laughs> this is a standalone that's much more folklore based, uh, and it's magic, and it's sort of set in a feudal, feudal Poland, mm-hmm. um, and it's just it's just a well crafted fantasy novel. Mm. Like, even really for people who don't yeah. like fantasy novels, it's the sort of thing where you will read it, you'll enjoy it. Ellen DeGeneres just optioned it. Wow! So. For her to star, 
As every character. Yes. <laughs> I would watch the shit out of that. <laughs> Ellen DeGeneres is. <laughs> um, Angela, do you have something you want to recommend? Um, so I'm trying to think what, oh, what can I recommend? Um, oh, so one thing that it has made me sort of happy as of late is, um, this isn't a book, but um, last week Kendrick Lamar put out like eight songs, um, Untitled Unmastered. Yeah. yeah. The first time, so I had, I was sick last week, like have to take antibiotics, like ill. And I don't know why I couldn't go to sleep, but I stayed up until like whatever time, like almost midnight when it came out, but I was like sort of delirious. (laughs) So I was like, I paid $10 for this. I want my money back. I hate this. And then I woke up the next morning. I just like listened to it one time through and then like passed out. And then I woke up the next morning and I was like, this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) What's wrong with you? Why do you have these knee jerk like rejections of things? Um, Yeah, it's just really good and like experimental and makes me excited for his like next album. Oh, like another, some more music. (laughs) And then I will have a book is um, uh, jazz artist uh, Kamasi Washington and um yeah you could just like put him in spotify and listen to all of it but um he's just he's from la um he was um he did saxophone on to pimp a butterfly right yes yeah so he's like sort of like affiliated yes um and uh i think he went to hamilton high school um and he uh is just really exciting and i feel like i don't know like the young people i know in my life listening to kamasi washington just make me feel makes me feel like less of a like a nerd for like liking <laughs> jazz because you know you just like when you like jazz people are like oh you know. and there is some like sort of hip-hop like influences obviously like in his um music and i know that he collaborates a lot with thundercat yeah and sort of other like jazzy la like hip-hop figures but um so i would recommend <laughs> Um, but as far as novels, um, good cook and good person, Alex Chi, really, um, I'm still thinking about the queen of the night. I was blown away by that book and it's just like, like aggressively and not in a bad way, like in a good way, researched, like historical fiction. And, but it's, it's sort of, I was explaining it to someone like if, Hilary Mantel like had more sex in in her books and I'm always a proponent for more sex in the books and so it's just like like it's sort of that level of like seriousness like this is serious historical fiction but then there's also just like sex and there's these crazy I haven't even gotten a chance to ask him about this um these like just really spot on statements and observations about like what it's like to be a woman. And obviously this is sort of in like 19th century courtesan, like France, but there are some of those things still transfer and it's like, Alex Chi, how do you know? (laughs) um, So it's really impressive. Wow. Well, you're the um, second guest who has recommended that book to us now. So it's like time. I'm very excited to read it. Um, Well, Oh, it's you. It's your turn. Oh yeah. So, along with audiobooks since I've been stumping for them. Um, I've been listening to Roger Ebert's Life Itself, hmm. which is his memoir just about life, as you might imagine mm. from the title. Uh, but Edward Herman reads it, who uh, you probably know him, if you know him at all, as the grandfather on Gilmore Girls. 
<laughs> so if you are like me and rewatching Gilmore Girls because there's the revival coming up on Netflix and you're really crazy excited about it and you're also really sad that Edward Herman has passed. Yeah. Um, this is an incredible book and it almost like if you take away the fact that it's Roger Ebert you can there are parts of it that you just can imagine are just Richard Gilmore's like actual past. <laughs> um and it's just an incredible just an incredible book. It just seems like Ebert was just he loves he loved life and loved movies and just loved his wife in a way that I just I don't know. I'm in awe of him and I'm reading all of his reviews and Yeah. I love the I love when he hates a movie. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I recommend listening to, because I don't know what it's like to just sit down and read this book, but listening to this Edward Herman tell you, uh, tell you Roger Ebert's life is an incredible experience that you should have. I don't know. Uh, Angela, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for coming. This has been a lot of thank fun. Thank you. And thank you for the cocktail. Oh, of course. Um, uh, we really appreciate it. And thank you again to Brooklyn gin for, yeah. uh, for providing us the, the gin for this episode. We'll be back next week having gone through the rest of the opening round of the tournament. Yes. And uh, we're very excited to bring it to you. And uh, please, if you're listening and you're enjoying the show, uh, will you please uh, rate and subscribe and talk about us on Twitter and things and talk to us about what you guys think your favorite is to win because we love when people talk to us about our show. Yeah. Okay, bye. All right, bye. (laughs) Bye. I mean, what would what would you do if you were offered the, a rooster? Yeah, that is the win. If you a win, live rooster? They, yeah. they offer you the option of accepting a live rooster. Well, you know, and what am I? What is the other option? 